Our guest today is an Eisner award-winning writer. She has written Jim and the Holograms, Mr. and Mrs. X, A-Force, Jessica Jones, Captain Marvel, Star Wars, Deadpool, Sabrina. She's going to be writing Spider-Man. You got Black Widow. I could go on and on and on and on and on. I mean, that's she just does so much. Everything she touches is gold. And she's actually written physical books, like normal novels, uh, of which include the girl actual who would books. be actual books, <laughs> of which include the girl who would be king, as well as story killer. Oof, those sound good. I'm gonna go check those out right after this. Guys, we got Kelly Thompson on the show. Kelly Thompson! Woo! God, when she accepted her interview, I was so excited. Oh man, I know. And I've been so giddy all day about, and you know, that's my word. (laughs) Oh, is that your word? Oh, they're right. Oh my God. You planted that in me. Yeah. We were talking to Philip. Yeah. We were talking to Philip. I said giddy a billion times and I'm like, this guy's probably not going to come back in the show because this little boy keeps on saying giddy. (laughs) (laughs) Giddy. Uh, I didn't even notice that, but oh my God, Cole, we, we have such a great interview with Kelly today. I mean, people at home, if you're joining because we have the great Kelly Thompson, <laughs> welcome. This interview, I promise, delivers. It definitely does. We had a lot of fun. Like, this is the most fun I've had in a long time. So it was we, great. We talk about Gem and the Holograms. Of course. Mr. and Mrs. X, you know, and X-Men in general. Oh my God. I like literally fanboyed out when we were talking about Nate It was Gray. the most adorable thing I got to witness ever in my entire life. And, you know, I think it's, you know, we, we can say this now it, it's out. She was a, she was the main driving force between age of X-Men. It wasn't her initial vision. What, what eventually came out, but she talks to us about what her initial vision was. And it was really, crazy. and it was so interesting to learn about that behind the scenes stuff, because that's what fascinates me so much about comics too. Like, of course I love reading them, but learning what writers, their process of building together these stories and how they Come and see light of day. It's amazing. But speaking of fanboying out, I saw that twinkle in your eye when we started getting into Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, I'm drinking out of a Spider-Man cup right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love, oh man, no. I'm drinking out of a crystal. Look at that. Like, I actually have a crystal in my water bottle. Okay, I guess we're not all fancy like Paul here. <laughs> <laughs> but um this is such a great interview i think we should just why don't let's throw up our socials now because we're just gonna let the next hour and a half play and folks can 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 find us to the magic yeah (laughs) listen to the magic but cole where can the folks at home find us we are on instagram at masters of comic books and and if you'd like to email us we're at masters of comic books at gmail.com yeah and we love hearing from other people. Please rate and review this podcast. I'm sorry, that's usually your bit. <laughs> that's usually you your gonna, bit. I, I allowed it. I'll allow it this time. Are you going to allow it? Okay. 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 There we go. I don't want to cause any tension. <laughs> All the behind the scenes drama. We oh, yeah. Through. Once this recording's done, you're just going to hear. I'm just like, I hate you. <laughs> No, no, this is, I, I got to tell you, I woke up this morning and I was just so excited that we we're going to talk to Kelly. Most, most importantly, that I was talking to Kelly with you. And yeah, it's just, it's <laughs> <definitely>. <laughs> but um, yeah, 
I mean, let's just get into our interview with Kelly. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to the Masters of Comic Books podcast, where we're two fanboys with all the power. I'm your player one, Cole L. And I'm your player two, Dayspring. God, guys, we have Kelly Thompson in the house. <laughs> How are you doing today, Kelly? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. We're absolutely honored to have you on the show. Of course. I'm excited to be asked. I do a lot of podcasts and I'm a pro is what I'm saying. So <laughs> high, high expectations for everyone. <laughs> Kelly, you know, the first time I became aware of your work was a couple years ago. And I was working at the Hachette Book Group and I went to Midtown East and I picked up a little comic book called Gem and the Holograms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was it number one or was it, it was mid number run? one? No, oh, yeah? it was number one. Oh, and fun. I'm a huge Gem and the Holograms fan. My sister watched it growing up and I, by proxy, being her little gay brother, was obsessed with Jerrica. And you did such a great job. Thank you. Thank you. It was really my first published work. I mean, I was working on a graphic novel with um, Meredith McLaren called Heart in a Box. And we'd been working on that for a while. We had pitched it a while before, but because it was taking so long as a graphic novel to complete, uh, Gem ended up coming out before it. So it ended up being really my first paid professional comics work. And I don't know if you know this, but we were on the cover of previews, which not everybody knows, but that's like a really hard thing to get because as a publisher, you can only get so many a year and things like this. And it's like, it's like a really big deal. And so for the first thing I was doing to be on previews, it was such like a wild thing. It was really throw you into the deep end of the pool, but I had incredible editor in John Barber and IDW was great. And of course I had Sophie Campbell, who is incredible. So we, we had a lot of advantages going for us that made making that really a great experience overall. I mean, I think Sophie still has a hit out on me for making her draw motorcycles and Ferris wheels in the same <laughs> issue, but but I, I've avoided death so far. So hopefully it'll be, hopefully it'll be cool. <laughs> but, but you know what I loved about the series so much? And I want to get into other stuff, obviously, but I have to geek out about Gem. But um, I, I, I do suffer from body dysmorphia and I love the body positive rendering you all had for yeah. that and then the fact that I was on previews and and I feel you gave rise to other venues like Shira the rebooted Shira because mm-hmm. it worked it was so great and 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 bodies come in all shapes and sizes and you can be a superhero you can be a singer and it doesn't matter you know yeah. I think you know body we certainly didn't make that stuff happen but I do think that we were a really great moment of pushing that forward and again that's mostly down to Sophie I mean I completely support her her choices and that was something we talked about from go about you know one of the great things about gem in the 80s was for what it was and what it was able to be with its restrictions it was incredibly inclusive and diverse for that time and we were like so we have to do more than that like we have to find better and more ways to be diverse to continue that sort of tradition we have to be pushing to what gem should be in 2015 not what it should be in 1980 and so and and idw was really supportive and you know sophie's designs are so um you know she's always sort of feels like she's really on the cutting edge and so it was a great moment 
And as a fat woman, it was really important to me as well. I try not to ever push my own agenda um, onto things. And there are places where it's either harder to do or less appropriate, like a lot of the superhero comics I write. But in Gem, it was a perfect fit. And it really meant a lot. We were able to do some of that stuff in the Misfits series, too. We had a Stormer-focused issue, and Jen St. Alms drew that, and that was incredible. So it was a, it was a really amazing... Gem was an amazing way to start in comics. And I think a lot of people, especially people who have longer careers than I have or who started much younger, I'm sure they have a lot of things from their early days that they look at and they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I wasn't ready yet or I wasn't so great or whatever. But I was very lucky by having incredible people around me that I'm really proud of, like my very first stuff that was ever out there. Like, I feel like it's really strong still. So, I agree with that too. Well, I was just going to say, cause I, uh, just a few weeks ago, I read your heart in a box, which you said was like one of your first like creator owned. Yeah. It was uh, books the very release. first, it was the very first thing I ever did in comics really. And I thought it was great. Like I really enjoyed what you and Meredith did in that book. And I thought it was a really strong start for your career. Thank you so much. It was a, you know, heart in a box was an interesting thing because I'd written it in some form in my like mid to late twenties. And then because I didn't have any money to pay any artists and because Kickstarter wasn't really a thing yet. And I, I didn't even know how to try to get it picked up. I was such a newbie into all that stuff. I just sat on it for a bunch of years and it was a case of that book was very much more just focused on romantic love and that man with no name character, when I wrote it in my mid twenties, when I came back to it in my mid thirties, I was like, this is a bigger, better story. If it's about more than just romantic love. And it says something, has something more to say than I think I, I saw in it when I was in my twenties. And so I rewrote it and uh, you know, Meredith was an incredible collaborator. Uh, She's a genius. So uh, I was, again, it was a case of being like really lucky and time uh, being on my side in that case. Like it's really hard as a creator to wait on projects, but sometimes that waiting really makes it better. So these were your first projects, but I want to rewind a little bit and get to know what little (laughs) Kelly was like growing up. And what, what was your first like comic book memory? What was your first exposure to comic books? My first exposure was definitely reading Archie Digests. Um, I'm old enough that I I didn't really even know comic book shops were a thing. And when I was sort of a reading age, I lived in a pretty small town. Maybe we had one. I don't know. But the way <laughs> I saw comics was Archie Digest that I would beg my mom for at the grocery store. And so that was really my first experience. It wasn't until we lived in a bigger, different town when I was a teen and I found the X-Men animated series that I had, that I began having my first, you know, reading my first monthly comic book and like going to a shop and beginning to understand how the whole industry worked and all the books that came out and like how it was a whole thing. It was a whole community that wasn't just buying an Archie from a grocery store, you know? (laughs) So (laughs) those are sort of my two formative experiences are with X-Men. The first technical book is, uh, Uncanny X-Men 290. It's got Storm on the cover, Will's Partacio cover. Um, so that and then uh, dozens of Archie Digests when I was little. <laughs> <laughs> 
So X-Men was one of your gateway drugs into the X, or excuse me, the comic book community. I'm a huge X-Men nerd. Yeah. And I mean, like right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to ask though, listen, I love every single X-Men out there, every mutant except Beast. What is Beast's problem? <laughs> I mean, I, I think I sort of agree with you. Like when I was a, when I was a teenager and- it was like whatever age I was, whatever year it was, the 90s. Uh, I loved Beast, but I don't recognize the guy that we mostly see now. Like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> and when I and when I wrote him just a little bit in Mr. and Mrs. X and stuff, I just wrote the guy that I love from the 90s and hope nobody noticed. Well, that I was, was about like, to say that. <laughs> you made him so likable for that brief moment when you wrote him, but like, and and who doesn't love Hank McCoy in prison, being a martyr for the mutant cause, <laughs> quoting Shakespeare? Yeah, right. Like, it's so great. He's like that cool uncle that no one has. Yeah. And then, like, I don't know. I mean, listen, AVX was a turning point for me. That's why I'm just like, I'm done with Beast. But I was, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, over on Power of X-Men, I talk about my, my disdain for Beast in particular. No, I, I sort of agree with you. I, it's not that I hate what they've done so much, necessarily. It's just that... I really liked the old iteration of that character and yeah. it's a little painful for me to not really recognize him anymore, but you know, I get it. Stories have got to grow. Characters have got to grow. It's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know if he grew, but he definitely changed. <laughs> <laughs> He's always evolving physically. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, <laughs> well, let's go to a positive note. Is there? <laughs> um, Cause Paul could go on hours about, talking how much he's disliked about me i'm so sorry oh my god well if you listen to our last episode that's he went on a big beast rant so (laughs) (laughs) so uh getting to comics and everything and uh reading archie comics was there like a certain character that really uh resonated with you when you first started reading like i know how uh wrote sabrina recently and so Mm -hmm. was she uh one of the characters that really resonated with you no, I didn't read too much Sabrina. I mean, I'm sure she came across my path a little bit, but I was definitely pretty classically Betty and Veronica. And okay. I was very team Betty. And now I find myself a lot of time being team Veronica, which is very confusing. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, I don't know that I attached to them. I don't know. I was probably pretty attached to Betty and Veronica at one time, but it was nothing compared to when I was a teen and I discovered the X-Men and my attachment was rogue for sure. Like I found like there was so much about her, you know, the relationship with, with Gambit, you know, I was the right age for that to really be interesting to me. Like, Oh my God, were they going to be together? Like I was super into the drama, but I also just, you know, rogue's isolation was really relatable as a teen like she so much wanted to be touched and she couldn't be but she was also afraid of it and built all those walls to protect herself from it and i I don't know for a teen girl i I can't speak for boys but that felt like everything a lot of times and i very i connected to her very powerfully rogue was my gateway i mean i'm a huge gene gray stan now but rogue was my gateway drug uh into into the x-men because I remember picking up that 94 Fleer Ultra card yeah. and, 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 and reading that she can absorb memories and her name was unrevealed. And I was so like enchanted by her. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, as I grow older and, and I was coming to terms with my identity, it, it's exactly what you just said. So eloquently and perfectly, I, I want to ask though, and, and I don't know if this is a fun question or, or not, but 
when you write Rogue, do you hear Lenore Zan's voice from the animated <laughs> series in your head? <laughs> Probably I do a little bit, but you know, when I was writing Rogue and Gambit and then Mr. and Mrs. X, although it happened when we were writing Rogue and Gambit, I very quickly realized I had to pare back their accents because, <laughs> you know, I'm not a super fan of, of the phonetic writing anyway, but I, I think it is important, especially for fans of those characters that you can feel that sort of subtle differences in speech. I just, I guess I would argue that Rogue and Gambit aren't that subtle, but it works okay in a team book and maybe even in a solo book where they are not surrounded by other characters with regional accents. But the two of them together in a team book, it was a nightmare. It was like every bubble was a headache. And so I, I paired it way back. I, I tried to get it to a point where it still felt like them and it still felt real and it didn't feel like we were shaving everything off of them and their identities, but where it was just more readable, you know, because it was so grating for every balloon to have that kind of thing going on. So I, I would say those accents are best... Uh, Best, best explored in the team book where you don't have as many bits of dialogue for yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, the rogue thing. I don't want to undercut our our powerful reveal there, but um, I hate that she her they revealed her name. I'm just responding to the unrevealed name on the card that yeah. intrigued you so much. It intrigued me too, and. I guess they couldn't get a lot away with it forever, but uh, mm. yeah, I hate I I hate the name they gave her, and I hate that they did it, they, and I avoid using it all the time, as I'm <laughs> sure occasionally people notice. Uh, <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah, they named her after Anna Paquin, obviously, but well, they sort of did. I mean, that's what I refer to her as Anna for sure. I make yeah. sure it's always Anna, but I mean, technically, it's what Anna Marie, which yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> let me show you something really quickly before we move on look at this is how much i love rogan gambit i don't know if you can see those posters right there those uh, 94 oh yeah 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 i don't those, know if you've uh, seen them before yes i have those are great those I are great so much that's I how much like... i have been intrigued by them <laughs> even well feel, into my adulthood i feel like i have to clarify so i didn't insult dozens of animaries that clearly <laughs> listen to your podcast it's a lovely name it's just not it yeah. never felt right to me for her i respect that they tried to name her after anna paquin and i love anna paquin so that sort yeah. of works but it, it just wasn't I don't know if I ever had a name that I thought was right for her, but that wasn't it. I agree. Well, when I first heard it, I remember Anna being Anna Paquin, the Marie, the name they gave her in X1. I remember thinking like, oh, it's just weird. It, when, when you have that anticipation. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's never going to live up to whatever you conjured in your head. A hundred percent, which is actually a really good argument for not doing the unrevealed thing because <laughs> you build up that anticipation and then people will inevitably be disappointed. But I'm with you. I still loved it when I was a kid. I found it very intriguing. Well, with X-Men being such a big part of your life, would you say like that creative team was such a big influence? Like who are some of your influences uh, within like the comic book community and everything? Well, I think I would say, I mean, certainly a lot of the people who were doing X-Men back then um, 
I was very unaware of who the writers are, which is such a weird thing for a writer of comics to say. <laughs> but, you know, obviously a ton of Chris Claremont was what I was reading when I was catching up on everything I hadn't seen before. And um, I think, you know, Scott Lobdell certainly wrote a bunch of X-Men that I loved and Fabian Nicieza and, you know, a lot of those guys. Um, I would say... But I would say my influencers are more like Greg Rucka, Brian Michael Bendis, Kelly Sue DeConnick. I mean, listen, you you absorb all these all these great writers stuff and it all becomes sort of a part of you a little bit, I think. But they're, they're some of the big influences I would call out for sure. Well, speaking of Kelly Sue DeConnick, I mean, she revolutionized Carol Dan- Danvers back in 2012. And then when you took over the book in 2000. Uh, 19. Um, that was one of the first books I ever read that you wrote. First off, I just want to say I love everything you've done with Carol so far. Like, I feel like you truly understand her as a character. And I think it, and it really reflects in your writing. I feel like you really respect her and give her the honor she deserves. And just thank you for doing that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It was an honor. It's been an honor to get to do it and to get to continue to do it. I was a very big fan of what Kelly Sue DeConnick did with her and she had a lot of other great stories between me and, and Kelly Sue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, it was, <sighs> Carol gets such a bad rap. I mean, I think she's coming out of it, but she really gets a bad rap from being not perfectly written in a couple high profile event books. And that can happen to any character. So it's a little gross how it's stuck to Carol in a way, like she hasn't been able to shake it off, but the character deserves a lot better than that. And so I just, whenever I go in, I'm just trying to write the best Carol I can. She doesn't come super naturally to me, like the military stuff and things like that, but I'm always someone who does my research and tries to bring it in. I try to really show her as a more strategic fighter. I try to show her as a natural leader. Um, You know, I love sort of giving her a strong supporting cast and like showing the organic way in which people just follow her. Like all that stuff's really important to me. I think there are little things that sort of add up to a really great whole. And I think they're all things that are the sort of things that Kelly Sue DeConnick started in her run. Yeah, I think you like really represent her legacy in a great well that uh, Kelly started way back in 2012. And I remember reading your fr- the first issue of Captain Marvel, and I, I just have it pulled it up right here. And just that first page is fighter, soldier, hero, pilot, captain, leader, warrior, icon. And it's just, and it's, it's a uh, three by three panel grid. And it's just like, I mean, all those words right there, easily depict exactly who Captain Marvel is, who Carol Danver is, Danvers is. And Thank you. Af- yeah, and after her just, I mean, getting so much flack in recent years because of certain events. And like you said, that could happen to any character in any book, but it just happened to be Carol. But you've managed to go 30 plus issues so far with more on the way. And it's just, I mean, I, I'm speechless right now. <laughs> <laughs> This has never happened before. That's so nice. That's so nice to hear. I mean, listen, you know, as a writer, uh, probably of anything, but I'll stick to comics. You know, you're just in your room with your stupid laptop all the time. So, you know, it's really nice to know that a thing you're putting a lot of heart and soul into is, is landing for people and it's making them feel something and making them care. That's literally every day my goal. So it means a lot. It's great. Kelly, do you listen or watch Grace Randolph from Beyond the Trailer? 
Not really. I don't, I, I know Grace Randolph a little bit from, mm. she did a little bit of comics work before she yeah. became like a personality. So I know, I, I, you know, I am very bad at listening to podcasts and watching shows and stuff, <laughs> mostly because I can't do it while I work. I'm always saying that this is the I'm one sorry. way in which artists have the advantage is because while they're working, they can just listen to anything. A lot of people will keep movies on in the background and stuff. I can't do any of that. (laughs) I mean, no, I would start, I would start listening to a podcast that I really wanted to listen to. And I would realize like five minutes in that I was either only listening to the podcast and not working, or I hadn't been hearing anything they'd been saying for several minutes. And so I just had to stop. So I'm always woefully behind on that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, Why? Reason, what did Grace Randolph say? So no, she was talking about <laughs> she was talking about Carol. I forgot what video it was, but she goes, "But my God, when you have a writer like Kelly Thompson, who everything she does, oh. every comic she touches, she just makes it work, and it's like gold." So, wow, that's I, so nice. Yeah. So <laughs> I was I forgot what video it was recently. It may have been something with um, you know the upcoming MCU movies, but she paid that compliment. And I was like, oh. We're going to be talking to Kelly soon. <laughs> that's, that's so nice. That's like such a nice thing to say. But I mean, it's just to piggyback off of what Cole said. I mean, I feel like you're Captain Marvel. Carol, I listen, I've loved Carol since she was binary. You yeah. know, like she is such a common. Oh, those are great. Those are great stories, though. Those binary yeah. X-Men days. Those were those were some fun stuff, man. Well, I'm a fan. That's- that scene of her and Rogue when Rogue joins the X Men and, oh, yeah. and Rogue is like Real. Carol Danvers, a woman I ruined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you Real. you have such a great approach to to Carol, and I think it just it just shines through in the work. So thank you. Here here's a question though: How would you prefer your Carol, since you're such a fan of binary Carol with the X Men or Carol with the Avengers? Well, I mean, I think you have to say Avengers just because of how she's situated in comics. Like she just fits with them better for the kind of lifestyle she leads, especially right now, but even before. But, you know, once upon a time, the Avengers did her so dirty, man. Like that is one of the most brutal and worst stories ever. It's disgusting. It's hard to read. It's It's terrible. And the X-Men were there for her. They were great. They were supportive. They helped her. And then they sort of betrayed her. I mean, I don't think they did because I think the rogue thing, you know, what are they going to do? Is they're just going to let Carol be mad at rogue forever and trying to kill her? And like, what were they supposed to do? So I don't know that they did a bad thing to her, but I certainly think from her point of view, she was incredibly vulnerable and something horrible happened to her. And it probably seemed incredibly disloyal and like a betrayal. And since she'd already gone through that with the Avengers, I'm sure it was like the last straw, right? Um, So neither of them have been super great, but I do think the Avengers makes more sense for like the kind of characters she's involved with and the way her stories work. It just fits a little better for the Avengers, right? Yeah, I agree. No, I'm right there with you. I wouldn't (laughs) mind her popping back in as binary every so often, but. (laughs) For sure. For sure. You know, I'm a big fan of the binary stuff. I think it's great. Binary. <laughs> <laughs> when you first took over the reins of Captain Marvel, was there sort of an excitement, especially like with the movie a month away? I think there was both excitement and terror. Like I was, <laughs> I was really excited that they trusted me to give me that title right at that moment when she was about to become huge. But there was also a lot of expectation that we would do well. Um, I think there were 
you know, we got very lucky because, you know, we're on issue 33 is coming out next week. I'm mm-hmm. currently writing 35. We're planning through 41 right now. So, oh, awesome. you know, it's going great. It's we're doing an amazing job, but our numbers at like five, six, seven were total cancellation territory. Mm, like wow. I, I was looking at those numbers and I was like, we're done. I was like, we'll get to 10, maybe 12, and then we'll be done. And I don't know what happened. I think a little bit of it is that Marvel waited long enough. It gave the title enough of a chance to see if it could find its audience. I understand why they do it. I understand there are a lot of very real numbers behind it, but you know, really good stuff gets canceled too fast sometimes. Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. and sometimes it just needs a minute to find its audience. I don't know what the early Immortal Hulk numbers were, but you know, that's a great example of give something that's trying to do something special some room to for people to realize how special it is and that it's not just you know, your average every day, whatever. And so I thought for sure we were going to get canceled. They didn't cancel us right away. Thank God. And then something happened with issue eight. Carmen came on back on after a two issue guest artist was on for war of the realms tie-in. And then we debuted star and she went, she went supernova. People were really excited about what that was all about and what that storyline was about. And we did these great numbers. And then we had already been planning, hoping to do the last Avenger and that did huge. And so that really boosted our numbers. It boosted our exposure. People were really talking about us and, and that's how you get to maybe, you know, to doing 40, you know? So it's, uh, it's a tricky thing. I wish I was in control of it because I would, I would figure out how to duplicate it for everything I do. But you know, it's uh, it's we got we got lucky, and I, I only say lucky because I think there are good books all the time that get canceled. I think we're yeah. a really good yeah. book, but that doesn't stop something from happening to you. So, well, yeah, I think too many books get canceled. I mean, just to recent memory, I feel like X Factor got canceled too soon that was probably one of my favorite X books that was out recently. Yeah. And it sucked that it had to wrap up everything in that last issue, which and ended it's up being always such, hard. Yeah. It's always and, hard. That happened to us on West coast Avengers too, where I yeah. at least thought we were going to 12, but then it was 10 and then they were changing our artists. So it's hard to sort of plan when you're having artists change. It's a really tough thing, man. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's, and it's difficult. I mean, it's the market, everything. It, I mean, it's so hard to see how stars align and what makes magic happen, but thankfully it's, it's worked for Carol and it also worked for Mr. And Mrs. X. Cause I love the magic you, <laughs> you, you, you conjured there as well. And so you were saying earlier that you kind of loved the Rogue and Gambit, you know, will they, or will they not drama of the nineties? <laughs> what was it like writing them as a married couple? You were, you, you had your first stab at that. As yeah. a writer, you, yeah. you had the first step. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, I was really excited. I mean, I wasn't sure they should get married, but that was sort of the decision made. I mean, that wasn't my decision that was handed mm-hmm. down. Um, I think we found it out as we were wrapping up Rogan Gambit, because when we went into Rogan Gambit, we were like, are we putting them together? We don't know. And so I was like, well, I've got a way to write it where we can leave it pretty open and then we can decide when we're closer to the end like where are we going and by the time we got there they decided they were going to get married and so we were able to sort of seed that of them sort of recommitting to each other 
as a romantic couple, which sort of set up the the change. So it was very cool to get to be the one to go in and to find that. And I was really pleased to be doing it as a super Rogan Gambit fan, because I'm sure tons of people could have done it, but I knew that they would be very safe in my, in my <laughs> hands. I didn't have to worry about what someone else might do. So it was, it was nice in that regard for sure. That was an adorable opening scene where they're tickling each other and like <laughs> just being a couple. And there was none of that drama that we've seen, you know, over the years yeah. with their miniseries. Yeah. But was it always going to be a, a miniseries? Uh, no. And well, I mean, I think when they greenlit it, um, I mean, Rogan Gambit was always going to be a miniseries. Uh, Mr. And Mrs. X was intended to be an ongoing but as is the case with most books these days you really just plan that first arc and then you have these ideas for what you hope you're going to do after that and then I I think pretty early we knew we were going to get either 10 or 12 but then we knew we were going to get sort of swallowed up by the Hickman stuff so we knew we knew we weren't going to go beyond 12 because of that were, were there any stories that you were wanting to write about them that you just didn't get a, a chance to to tell? Yeah, for sure. I would have loved to write that book for, you know, 50 issues. Like I would have loved. I <laughs> we mean, would have yeah. loved to have had you for 50 issues. Yeah, for I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> for I mean, that record. <laughs> but I'm just happy to like, maybe I'll get a chance again. Who knows, you yeah. know, put a, put a pin in those ideas and come okay. back to them later, maybe. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Well, to you, like what constitute constitutes a good Rogan Gambit story? I think fun, sexy, high octane. You know, I, I want there to always be like a good emotional core at the center of that stuff, like something that makes them tick or something we're excavating about them or about their relationship together. Like, so I will always want it to have a heart underneath that. But I think on the surface, it should be a lot of fun, playful banter and tricks and you know feats of strength it should just be really fun like I mean that was the funny thing when um when I got brought on to do Rogue and Gambit my editor was Darren Shan and he was like you know so what's your idea for this and I was like you know I just want to do like a really fun heist high octane heisty kind of book like let's just have some fun he was like okay that sounds great and then I went off and I re- read and reread a bunch of stuff, uh, reread a bunch of the old stuff that I had loved and read a bunch of stuff that I'd missed. And after reading and rereading all this stuff, I then did a very eternal sunshine of the spotless mind esoteric pitch and sent it to Darren. And I was like, I know this isn't really what we talked about. You can call me when you're done reading it. And he called me and he was like, what happened? And I was like, Here's what happened. I went back and read and reread all that stuff. And we can't do that. We have to address all this fucking baggage or we're not going to get anywhere. And honestly, if we do like a fun heisty thing, it's going to make no impact at all. And it's going to feel like every other little story that's been written about them in the last 20 years. I was like, we got to do a real hard reset to get these characters back on the track to tell something cool and fun that's a great story but that also deals with this stuff and he was like okay but you got to meet me in the middle like they got to be able to punch some stuff and I was like all right all right all right and so I reworked the pitch so that it was you know a little bit of the first thing and a lot of the second thing that I had wanted and uh, I remember still even after we did that Darren was like 
why are they in therapy? Who wants to see them in therapy? <laughs> Here, and I was I like, yeah, I was all for it. I like, I literally <laughs> raised my hand and I was like, Darren, literally everyone. I was like, I'm sorry <laughs> to know about these characters, but we all want to see them work this shit out. Like, get out of my way. Work it out. <laughs> Go to your apartment and be with your cats. I yeah. love that. <laughs> I totally would have written more therapy if I could have gotten away with it. Um, so yeah, but um, we we I think we where we landed ended up being almost exactly the right fit. So it had a little bit of what it needed to be an X-Men story and a lot of what it needed to be a thing to get Rogue and Gambit back on the right track. And I'm really happy with it. I really, I really love it. I, well, we really love it. We're big stands <laughs> of that work, as you can tell. <laughs> um, another, another th- stuff you did with the X-Men that I'm a big stand of, I'm a huge Nate Gray fan. And you brought my boy back with Rosenberg and Brisson. And I spoke with Rosenberg recently, by the way, he says, hello. (laughs) And, and I want to know what was it like doing those, those, I I think you guys plotted out the first 10 issues because Hickman was coming and then Hickman got delayed. What was it like? And I don't know, I wasn't there, but what was it like doing the, the uncanny relaunch? It was really fun. It was, it was exciting. I think when we first got the job, it wasn't called uncanny yet. It was, it was like a, it was like a mini event X-Men disassembled or something like that. And then somewhere early in the, pretty early in the process, they were like, okay, guys, it's going to be the uncanny book. And we were like, oh, okay. We're like, all right then. So we were really excited, but we also knew the pressure was on. I think that what we had to do, and I don't mean like Marvel screwed us or anything. I just mean that some jobs are harder than others. Mm-hmm. I think we had a really hard thing we had to do. They wanted us to go in there and blow everything up. They wanted us to go in there and clear the field. And as a big fan, that's not always the story you want to write. Like, you know, that's not, you know, if for my first shot at Uncanny X-Men, did I want to write a story that like broke everything? And, you know, that wasn't my dream story, but, you know, you take the job and it's your job to then, turn it into the best possible story you can. And I was fortunate to have really great partners in Matt and Ed, who were two of my best friends before this. And I was really excited that they were on the project. And then after that, I was like, oh, wait, are we still going to be friends when it's over? Like, I don't know how well this is going to go. Like, it's going to suck if I lose my two best friends because this ends up being a nightmare. But no, it only drew us closer together. They're still my best friends in comics. It's great. Uh, It was really fun to write with them. I think... um, Matt, Ed, and I share a lot of similarities, which makes us a sort of good writing team. And then we've got just enough sort of differences of opinion to hopefully, you know, bring in some other stuff and make it a little more interesting. Like Ed definitely wanted to write too many press conference scenes, which I was against. And <laughs> I wanted people to kill too many dinosaurs. So, you know, it's like, well, you got, you got to meet in the middle for the best of both worlds. But wait, who was the one who suggested having Nate come back? I, I feel like it was Matt. I, I don't know for sure, but Matt is for sure the one who came in with a lot more ideas. And that's Matt's sort of go-to anyway. I mean, sometimes, I don't know if he's still like this now, but I remember, God, a couple years ago now, he was pitching something and he showed me, he had like 10 ideas on the document. And I was like, well, which one are you pitching? Like pick one and flesh it out and send it in and tell them that's what you're doing. And he was like, oh, well, no, I sent them all of these. And I was like, what? 
I was like, you're crazy. <laughs> I was like, first of all, they'll pick the worst one. That's how this goes. And I don't mean Marvel. I mean, that's like a famous thing that happens. You know, if you're a graphic designer, you don't show the client the design you don't like because that's the one they pick. It's just the nature of the beast. And so we have different styles. I don't know which one works better in that scenario, but his is definitely more generous and more informed. And so my recollection is he came to the mini summit we did with a lot of really good ideas. So I suspect, I suspect Nate was his idea. I think Legion might've been his idea. We might've come to that together, but he was also doing, is still doing, I think a huge reread slash read of Marvel comics. So he had just been in the thick of it, I think, and like really had a lot of that old stuff on his mind, the stuff that we could link back to and draw out, you know? Yeah. And he told me that your Age of X-Men was originally your brainchild. Is that true? Wow. That's gotten out into the wild. Yes, it is true. I'm glad to know. I, I, I looked at the questions you sent over and I was like, how did they know this? Yes, that is correct information. Um, I think in the room, I think it was actually Chip Zdarsky that said the words mm-hmm. age of X-Man, but he mm-hmm. said it because we were in the hallway on the break talking about it. And I was expressing some frustration about not knowing if I should pitch it or whatever. And he's like, no, that's great. He's like, they're looking for something to fill this hole. They're going to have something that's better than what they're talking about. You got to pitch that. And so then he sort of prompted me in the room to try to get me to talk about it. And, and yeah, they liked that idea. I will say that what they did was not what I pitched. I mean, I pitched Age of X-Man, which was then you know, X number of months of these new books that would look a different way and that would resolve in order to set up the, so, you know, it's the same sort of setup, but they just did something completely different with it than I was going to do. Ken, just because I'm a nosy Nate Gray fan, <laughs> what, what, did you have an original vision for Nate in, in, in this age of X-Men that you can share if it's not something that you're putting a, a push? No, no, I, I think, I don't remember the specifics of how we got in and out of it. I mean, it was a lot of power X-Men, X-Man shenanigans uh, to get there and to get out of there. But the basic idea was that because of characters that Nate was connected to at the time that he like blew it all up or whatever, you'd end up with like five or six different, completely different quote unquote worlds. So you'd have like a detective noir book You'd have like a wild fantasy book. You'd have a horror book. You'd maybe have a romance book. You'd have a um, a sci-fi one. And then maybe it was like a dystopian or a utopian version. And so it's like, so maybe he was touching magic at the time that everything exploded. And then like the world was sort of created from her influences or something. So, you know, it was like this world that looked like a hell world because it came through magic and she's got all that limbo stuff in her. And so then it was just about, it was mostly a really fun chance to see these characters cast in very different roles and interacting with different people than we sometimes get to see them in and just to see them through a new lens. But then at the end, it's your basic sort of story about people fighting to get back to themselves, to who they really are, to the real world, that kind of thing. Well, let me tell you, a, a world where it's all romantic and romance, I put Nate and Madeline Pryor there. <laughs> <laughs> I am alone in that shipping. That that sounds 
like magic to me. But <laughs> all right, I'm done. I'm done being the nosy Nate fan. I'm gonna throw it to Cole. But thank you so much for answering that. I'm, that sounds wonderful. I, I love course. that character, and I was so excited when you guys brought brought him back in Uncanny. I think, I think my version would have been really fun, but you know, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And, yeah. you know, I know that a lot of people really love the things that were created in that little pocket. So, yeah. you know, all for the best. So another one of my favorite books that you're currently writing is Black Widow. And I just want to say congratulations on your big Eisner win. That is amazing. I think you definitely deserved it. While you're, this isn't the first time you've been recognized by the Eisners. Like, how does it feel to have this tremendous achievement? It's awesome. It's awesome. I, um, you know, I, I, I would love to pretend that I don't care about the Eisners, but I absolutely do. I think, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those great accomplishments that you can feel like, well, oh, I've really done something like I've been recognized for this hard work I'm putting in. And it feels wonderful to know that people are acknowledging that. I think, um, in the case of Black Widow in particular, I mean, you know, I would have, we were nominated in the same category for my Hawkeye book a few years before, and I would have loved to win for Kate, but I don't know. It was a really male heavy selection this year, like a lot, there's not a lot of diversity in the list. I was a little disappointed. And so for our almost entirely female team to win on our almost entirely female book, that was really, I don't know, a sort of, feminist pushback against the brainwashed woman sort of trope. Um, it felt really good. It felt like a real acknowledgement that we had done something special there. And it meant a lot. Well, I think it was truly something you deserved because I feel like I loved your first arc because you really hit the ground running. And while you put like, you put Natasha through a predicament, like we've never seen before. I mean, like the first few pages sees, um, falling out a window and then she has this other family that we've never seen before yeah and I thought that was such a really cool approach I mean with you giving her a family and everything but uh, now that uh, they've been taken away from her spoilers um, uh, <laughs> every now and then uh, we see Natasha thinking about her family and everything uh, was it your intention to uh, have Natasha deal with this sort of loss and trauma and how it could uh, affect her future actions and what could happen in later arcs yeah, my hope, I mean, again, when you're planning one of these things, you're probably only greenlit for five or six issues right out of the gate. So I thought, well, if I'm only going to get one shot in Natasha, I want to tell this really emotional, moving story. And if they're going to give us more, I think I've got a way to pivot out of that story to push her in a slightly different direction, to let her sort of try to become a, a, a lone quote unquote vigilante for a new city that she feel really needs her to try to do, to try to redirect her energies to, to really doing good on the ground for people uh, as opposed to sort of higher level, let's blow up the moon or what, you know, <laughs> like whatever, like those kind of stories. And so I really wanted to push her into that sort of superhero vigilante world a little bit. And I thought with San Francisco, it was a great way to do it. You know, Daredevil's been there before and she knows the city from that time that she was with him, but it also is a little bit uncharted territory. We don't see a lot of uh, characters there. So it was a place where she could sort of spread her wings a little bit, but yeah, I wanted to, you know, the obvious place to go after that first story was the revenge tour. <laughs> and I just didn't want to do that with her. I felt like she was better than that at this point. You know, I'm not saying she doesn't want revenge. She does. But 
she's choosing her bet to listen to her better angels, right? And to try to bring more life and goodness into the world instead of death and destruction, even if those people fucking deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you brought in uh, Yelena into the story. Did you always intend to have their relation explored in, in the book? Yes and no. She was always supposed to be in the book. Uh, she was always going to be in the first arc and I was going to use her more as an ally than an enemy. I knew that she was pretty pivotal, but about halfway through, you know, we've started talking about it a little bit. Did we want to keep her on and what would that look like? And I was pretty interested in keeping her on. She made story sense for where I wanted to go, but also I'm a huge Florence Pugh fan and I was pretty confident she was going to be a big hit. Oh, yeah. um, I've watched almost everything she's done and she's killed it in everything. So <laughs> I knew she would kill this. I thought people would be really into it. And I was sure because Scarlett Johansson was leaving, I knew Marvel was really going to put their best foot forward there to really have fans connect with that character. And so I thought, you know, let's keep her around because that might be good for us. We can always use a couple more hits. And then when she was a huge hit. We were like, yes, we were right. And we're so glad we kept her in the book. And it was always my intention. I mean, Yelena has been really mishandled a lot. Um, you know, not, not her origin, of course, she was intended for a specific purpose. And there's some great stories by her creator, Devin Grayson, and also from Greg Rucka. There's some really cool stuff in there. But there's also weird stuff in there with like her being turned into super adaptoid for some reason and stuff. So like there's a lot of really crazy stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense to me for Yelena. And so I was just more interested in getting them sort of back to basics as widows. Um, they have a lot of similarities because of who they are and how they were raised and what they've been through. But they've also processed those things completely differently. And especially Natasha has had the advantage of the Avengers and the X-Men and this whole community that that rallies around her as a hero and Yelena has been largely left alone and so it's made them very different people who also have these similar experiences and it's interesting to play with I think they've got a cool dynamic that's fun for people but you can also feel I hope that it's sort of building to something a fight or a breakup or uh, you know what is it going to be we don't know for sure a betrayal, something, because they're not super cool with each other. They're like people who agree to be allies, you know, and then are like, okay, it's good. Like, you know, they're like family. They love each other, but do they like each other? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, another character you brought into the book was uh, Spider-Girl, which we haven't seen in, I feel like, a very long time. And will she be joining full-time? Because I very love her in the book. <laughs> Well, she's definitely in 12 through 15 full-time, um, okay. although although that. only Natasha's in 13 because that's a flashback issue. But um, okay. so she's in 12, 14, and 15. Uh, I don't really have intention of dismounting her from the team. I am keeping a little bit of an eye on because one of my weaknesses is I put too many characters on a team because I get excited about characters I like, and then nobody has enough sort of room to to do the cool stuff I want them to do. So I'm keeping an eye on that a little bit because of the introduction to Lucy and some of the things we're trying to do with Lucy and Matt. I have to be careful that there's enough room to make sure that lands for everyone. Uh, but I love Anya. The whole reason I brought her in is because of a terrific um, Kelly Sue DeConnick, Warren Ellis 
uh, story she did a ways back. I think it was an Avengers Assemble title. Mm-hmm. And it was Anya. And there's a there's an issue where she teams up with Spider-Woman and Black Widow. And I just loved it. It just completely pops. It's got so much energy and fun to it. I loved it. And so I've always wanted to put them back on the page together since then. Well, it's great because you have her like go undercover where uh, Apogee, the villain and everything. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it totally changes the tone of the book, but in a really fun way. And it was a great addition when I turned that page and she was on there. I was like, ah. I'm so glad (laughs) I'm so well I'm so glad you get me because you know when I first brought her into the book I think you know my editor Sarah is Brunstad is very supportive so she didn't tell me not to do it but maybe I could sense a little bit of hesitation and then when she read the first script she was with Anya in it she was like you were so right she brings (laughs) like a great bit of levity that I think we need because you know Natasha's funny but she's not jokey you know and so sometimes you want that lightness a little bit for contrast so yeah and it definitely works too because there's a bunch of witty witty banter between all of them and I just love it so much (laughs) thank you what inspired you to create the villain Apogee and like that whole like cult sort of deal I wanted something that could feel like Nat was really helping people like people were really being abused vulnerable people were being abused in a really direct way that would sort of offend Natasha and sort of force her to get involved but I always wanted to keep him mysterious in that first arc and therefore to be more to him than than what he seemed or than what Natasha had found out and I mean honestly we're still excavating that because as as Black Widow 11 implied uh, he'll be showing up again, but in a pretty unexpected way, I think. Mm-hmm. So that story's not quite over. Ooh. Sweet. Hmm. So <laughs> intrigue. Intrigued. I was going to ask, is there anything you can tease? <laughs> and I think right there. Um, what about those Adam Hughes covers? They're, oh. they're, they're gorgeous. Outstanding. Uh, he's incredible. He's incredible. I, you know, Adam Hughes has been good for so long that it's, and so good playing at such a level that you know you sort of just assume he can't level up anymore but I think he really has on the Black Widow covers I think they're some of the best covers of his career um and I think some of that is he's just a badass and I think some of it is that for whatever reason he really likes Black Widow he really connected (laughs) to the story we talk about it a lot he's involved so yeah they've been incredible I mean listen I knew something special was happening when on the third issue is that wedding dress cover and he did the text so that the the I do in widow was in white with the dress and it was like so clever and I was telling him how how much I loved it and he's like what about all that spider web patterning he's like I did that just for you (laughs) and I was like I was like I'm sorry Adam I was like it's so amazing I was like I I love it so much so um yeah it's it's incredible we've been so lucky god yeah, i'm looking at that cover right now it's gorgeous and the cover for it's hard it's hard for me to pick a favorite honestly because they're all great like five has got to be one of my favorites it's incredible especially with the text integration and stuff that's the one where she's perched on top of the signs oh, yeah the city. oh my god i mean that's one of his best covers of his lifetime in my opinion but like and the lighting sort of, to it is beautiful it's oh. incredible 
but he like sort of blows off cover six like eh, it's just and it's at one of her in the new costume against the wall but mm-hmm. it's so iconic like it i love it it's so good i don't know why he's like i i don't know why he doesn't respect it more but then cover 13 with the short hair and the gray costume and she's all beat up and that those crazy reds uh, oh, man yeah. That, is that one my favorite? I, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. They're they're all so good. It's like asking, being asked to pick a favorite child. You know? Yeah. They're so good. Oh God, so great. I love all my children. <laughs> <laughs> Next week starts the Amazing Spider-Man Beyond era, and you are part of that writers' room with Zeb Wells, Saladin Ahmed, Cody Ziegler, and Patrick Gleason, and so many more. How did this creative team come to life? I do not know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was just put on it. Um, It was already sort of assembled. Like, I mean, I knew, I knew it was Zeb. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew he was going to be sort of running the room. So would you I, say he's like the ringleader of the whole thing he, then? He definitely is the leader um, at which uh, is why he gets to write the first issue and also why he has to write all the outlines. <laughs> um that's actually not true i have to write my own outline for my issue but he has to do the overall outline that keeps track of at where everything is going and coming and you know all that stuff the first two spider-man issues i've written i did 77 and 78 and then i also have a short in 75 the first issue and um you know they've been some of the easiest books i've had to write because the long-term plotting is the hardest part for me It's the part that takes me the longest. It's the part that I'm the least excited about, even though I always want it because you need that guideline for when you're in the weeds, man. Uh, So I always want people to do it. I always recommend myself to do it, but it's the hardest part of it to me. And so because Zeb, you know, as a team, we were all having those meetings and everything. And then someone else was taking the notes and going off and doing the first pass. And it just made it so much nicer for me, you know? Well, yeah, I... It's Zeb, first of all, just to comment on him, is such a great guy. I think he's the best. He was one of the first interviews I did uh, over at Power of X-Men, and he was so gracious with his time. And I love that you guys are all doing this Keystone kickoff. Are, are you guys like on a on like an X Slack? Like, do you have a Spidey Slack? <laughs> we do. We do have a Slack, but um, we it's very work focused. It is not what I have heard the X slack is, which sounds like <laughs> party most of the time work some of the time. Uh, no, it's not as, it's definitely not as vibrant as that slack. I don't know if that's cause we're more busy or just cause X-Men are weird and there's a lot of things to talk <laughs> about and Spider-Man is slightly less weird. I don't know. So we have a slack, but it's very work focused. I mean, gotcha. sometimes when I'm talking to Zeb, I don't, I like, I, I wouldn't talk. I'd email him or I'd DM him on Twitter, maybe, or even maybe I'd text him. I probably wouldn't hit him up in the Slack. So <laughs> apparently, we have to work on our Slack if we want to compete with the X. <laughs> but um, Zeb is a complete, just like a, just like a treat to be around. I have to tell yeah. you, he's got such a good way about him. He's got such a like a friendly openness that it's just kind of how you're excited to meet people who are like that. Like it feels so refreshing. He's also just legit. One of the funniest people I've met the first time I was in a room with him. uh, You know, I didn't really know him at all. And 
we, we had talked the night before on the walk to one of the dinners or something. And he was really nice. And then the next day in the room was his pitching day. And he pitched some stuff that I was not even interested in. And he had that whole room laughing. Like he just had them in the palm of his hand. He was so good. Nobody wanted to go after him <laughs> because he just destroyed that room. It was so good. Well, I think well, maybe it was spider ham. He was pitching. That was really, <laughs> it was really funny. I think. I think hey, listen, what it was. when you're Mr. Heidi Gartner, like, <laughs> yeah. you, you got some humor in you. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I mean, he's cute too. Cause you could think that it was just cause he's cute, but no, he's got the humor chops for sure. Uh, he's no dummy. And, uh, and he's incredibly gracious. He's a really wonderful collaborator. Like he's very not ego driven. Like he's really great at sharing. He's really wants everyone to succeed. I really just don't have a bad thing to say about the guy. Plus Hellions is my favorite comic book right now Same. at Marvel Comics. Yes, me too. I'm, don't don't spoil me because I'm several issues behind. Oh, no, no worries. Uh, you get it. But I love it. It's hysterical. It's, yeah, it's I think it's my so favorite X book. Goddamn right funny. It is. Yeah. It has no right to be that funny. <laughs> my I, God, well, uh, Nanny. Oh my God, I love Nanny. <laughs> he. We were just looking at some uh, via email. We were just looking at some proofing passes on some of my Spider-Man issues. And he screen capped this thing that he liked from the PDF and then was saying that he was very jealous of my, my dialoguing or whatever. And I was like, what? I was like, from you, please. <laughs> like I'm jealous every page of Hellions I read. I'm like, why didn't I write that? <laughs> so good. Hellions is so good. It's, it's such a, I, I know that was a pitch that he gave to Hickman at some kind of event or summit and everyone was like we're gonna put a cover with nanny and orphan maker and it's gonna do and oh it did really well yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like it is phenomenal yeah, yeah. I, i'm trying to pull up a fan art that someone did of nanny at the hellfire gala but she's like wearing like a dress with a slit and her heel is <laughs> it's, it's so great. adorable it's but. great stuff man he's That's he's a so terrific writer and honestly that whole room is great yeah. i know um cody ziegler is pretty new to comics but i mean he's doing some cool stuff in tv and he's really great he's really great he's very funny he's really supportive he gets it he really knows how to break story saladin is in there obviously he's fantastic and I've never gotten to work with Patrick before in a writing or art capacity, but you know, he's fantastic. Like, and there's something so great. I mean, I know that Pat's writing some of this stuff as well, but you know, he doesn't turn off his art sensibility, no matter how he's approaching it. And it's really helpful to have someone who knows that shit in the room, you know, writers, you know, Marvel ends up with writers being the architect most of the time. And that's mostly just a practical choice, I think, because artists can't stay on books for long term because they need breaks and all these things, whereas writers can write multiple titles for long runs and it's not a problem. So it's just this practicality thing. But I have to say, having Pat in the room on Spider-Man, it was incredibly helpful in ways that I didn't really expect. And I, I bet more books would benefit from having artists there from the from the jump. You know, they just think a little differently yeah. and it, it makes everything better. Yep. Uh, Patrick Gleason's really great. I don't know if you've ever like read his uh, Batman and Robin and or uh, Superman that he did with Patrick. Uh, now Patrick, uh, Patrick Gleason and Peter J. Tomasi did together, but he yeah. also he helped write those. And yeah, and I think those books really benefited from him 
also be in the writer on those because not only did they look good, but they also told very thoughtful stories because yeah. he was fully with it with him and uh, Peter J. Tomasi. Yeah. There's a, there's a real commitment there to the idea, you know, when, when the artist gets to be involved in the writing too. And I've read a couple of those. I haven't read the full runs or anything, but I've read a couple of those. Uh, Highly they're, recommend them. They're, they're good. Yeah. They're really they are, great. The one I read was very good. Yeah. Is there a similarity or a difference within this like writing room sense, how like uncanny was? Uncanny was different. I think because, well, it's, it's a different for a few reasons. Because Matt and Ed and I were all so close to begin with, you know, we did have a little writer's mini summit where they brought us to New York. And I assume if COVID hadn't happened, that would have happened for Spider-Man too. Mm-hmm. Instead, we, instead, we did it on Zoom. And so there are similarities, but I think that, you know, even just the way it was broken up was differently because Matt, Ed, and I would split the books up rather than, hey, you write two and I'll write three and you write four and, you know, et cetera. We just divided them up page pages within the same issue and we talked about it quite a bit about how we thought we could do it and in the end we decided we were close enough and we thought we were good enough that we could we could smooth out any voice changes and we could all write to that so that it would feel pretty seamless that you wouldn't really be able to tell who wrote which pages because we didn't want it to feel clunky and then, you know, so issue one is super easy because it was 60 pages. So it's 20, 20, 20, but yeah. for the rest of the 20 page issues, it doesn't really break evenly. So I think what we did was seven pages, seven pages and six, and we alternated who was on the six and whoever was on the six had to write the outline um, <laughs> for that issue. So, you know, we had an overall outline that connected it all together, but then the specific page to page outline, whoever was doing the six pages would do that. And um I think sometimes we called which section we wanted but it was pretty it was pretty good for the most part like you always knew ed was really interested in the kids a lot so you knew he would want that scene if there was a good scene with them um and especially once he knew he was going to be writing the age of x-man stuff that had the kids he was even more interested because he knew he could control sort of setting that up a little bit with those characters like I said, I wanted to write dinosaurs and fight scenes and, you know, Laura emerging from a dinosaur's insides and crap. Um, <laughs> I don't know what Matt wanted, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it all worked out. I think it was pretty seamless. Like a lot of people, I remember back when it was coming out, a lot of people were trying to guess who wrote what, and sometimes they'd get it, but I feel like that's a, that's sort of a win that we were able to sort of keep that pretty seamless. Who decided to bring Ben Riley in for, uh, beyond was that zeb that was made before i got there okay it, it could have been Thank like you. it was it was it was already this is the story like this is the general thing before i got there um so it could have been zeb but i think it might have been nick Lowe. okay um or or something they had been developing before that they thought now is the right time for or something like that right. um but it, it could have been zeb because he was involved pretty early so what, what are your feels on that OG clone saga? <laughs> it's not really my favorite stuff. I mean, I like a, I like a clone story. I've written some clone stories, nothing involved like that. Um, I just think, you know, clone stuff can get out of control pretty quickly. And I think the clone saga is sort of a 
perfect example of that, right? Like yeah. Yeah. some of the stuff in there is the best stuff. And some of it's like, where are you, why are you doing this to me? Why are we, why are we doing this? You know, I think part of it for me is that, and I'm not the most well-read Spider-Man reader of all time by any means, but like some of the stuff that I would read, God, I can't remember what it's called now. This is drawn by John Romita Jr. And it's about Ben and Kane and it's got some weird title that I'm forgetting now. Anyway, that was one of the things I read right before we were starting up the room. And the problem with that for me was even though the art was cool and I got what they were trying to do with the story, it, it felt really dark. It didn't feel like Spider-Man to me. Like I'm not saying Spider-Man shouldn't have dark bits, but part of what the appeal is of Peter Parker and it should also be Ben because they're clones is this undefinable Peter Parker-y thing about them of this goodness and this optimism and this hope and this driving forward to make things better and some of the stuff that I was reading that was clone saga or clone saga adjacent felt really dark and almost mean in a way that that Spider-Man isn't really my take on that like it isn't really what resonates for me about that so mixed bag some of it's really good some of it's less you know i have to do a deep dive into it. i haven't read it in such a long time so you know as a kid it was just epic you know what i mean like i, I, yeah, I had to yeah. revisit it as an adult because like I, I can't even tell you what happened in it you know what i mean yeah and, yeah and it, it was, and it has that reputation yeah, yeah it was epic but it was chaotic you know it yeah. was a lot you know it's almost how a lot of comics were in that era i mean i wasn't alive yeah. during that but like i always read stuff. <laughs> I, yeah paul and i have a huge age difference. <laughs> but i've always like read how like comics like you had like death of superman that went for so many issues and it's crazy or like uh even batman's nightfall and stuff like it started out interesting and then it just got super chaotic for like yeah. so many issues so it's always interesting yeah. i think to uh well, read about would- stuff like that I would say that for people who are worried that they're headed into some crazy new clone story, I would say it's not that at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a clone story by the very nature of Ben being involved, but there are no other clones on the scene. Like cloning shenanigans are not a thing. (laughs) They're not a part of the story. It's Mm -hmm. not a thing on which the story turns. It's a story about Ben and Peter. It's a story about to a degree, the Beyond Corporation, what they're doing, how they're manipulating things, how they're helping, how they're hurting, whatever. Uh, it's also a story about Miles because you know he's a huge part of the Spider-Man legacy. Um, I've seen people online being mad about pre-mad, I should say, about pre-mad. Miles. <laughs> what the internet story. being pre-mad? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> shocking. Oh, shocking. Who would have ever predicted? Gas. Um, <laughs> to Twitter. <laughs> Uh, so people being pre-mad about Miles' role in the story when they don't know his role in the story. Um, and it, I guess I can understand that because like anyone who's been burned, it's easy to get frustrated. But I guess I would just say, look at who's in that writer's room. Does anyone seriously think Saladin Ahmed writing Miles Morales is going to let <laughs> it just go? Like, it's just going to let us tell a story that disrespects Miles and that doesn't address these things? Like, of course yeah. not. Like, he's in the room helping us make these choices. Like, even if all of us weren't Miles fans who are interested in him and make sure we want to protect, 
you know, his roles and things, Saladin was there, if not, you know, so I don't know. I would also say that when I think of the clone saga stuff, and it's been a long time for me too. I mean, I reread some of it recently, but not all of it, but sometimes those stories feel unwieldy Mm. in a bad way. Like, like you, you get this sense when you're reading it of like, oh, maybe this is cool, but it doesn't feel like it knows where it's going or I'm not sure that they know what they're doing or something. I would say that there is a nice thing about our story that I think is very true, which is we knew the end from when we were like, we knew from the first meeting where we're driving to what it's about. What are these themes about? Where are the beats? Here are these character moments. Like, I think it's a great Spider-Man story. I really do. I love it. I mean, I haven't read every issue yet because they're (laughs) not all done, but everything I've read has been great. And of course my issues have Sarah Pacelli drawing, which is incredible. Oh, and oh also, yes. Sarah, yes. I love Sarah. Also, oh my God, yes. Also historic, first time a woman writer and uh, artist on uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Oh, Spider-Man, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That is Congrats. awesome. Yeah. Makes that it is even beyond better. cool. Yeah. Oh my God, two powerhouses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's cool. Her, hers looks so great. I just did the PDF. Uh, on her second issue today it's incredible i love it so much and then i've got a short in the first one in issue 75 that's uh drama travel foreman which is oh, awesome. also which is also fun so kelly we do have a very important question to ask about your your, your work on spider-man okay is jeff the land shark <laughs> <laughs> gonna appear <laughs> not unless someone else is writing him i guess i could try and get a cameo in in uh i've got two or three more issues I have to write. So maybe I can find a way to get him in there. We'll see. I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you in advance. Thank you in advance. Thank you for that small favor. <laughs> so you announced on your newsletter that you are joining Substack with two creator-owned series. Yes. Very excited. Very excited. What can you tell us about so, these two series? So as some people know from Substack, Substack is basically a newsletter service, but they're Mm -hmm. branching out into other sort of media stuff that's all sort of based on newsletters. But in the case of comics, you know, they're integrating comics into it. So they've partnered with the Panels app, which, Mm. so I think there are two comics that it's James Tinian's blue book is mm-hmm. on the panels app and then also i think jeff lemire's fish flies they've both got a significant amount of pages out for those books and they're on the panels app they look great yeah. so it'll be a thing where you can get new comics from me if you subscribe to this thing you can get them directly into your inbox but you can also choose where you want to read them or download them or like how you want to do it i i think you know they're still working out some of the kinks to some of that stuff but i kind of think they're going to be there by the time my stuff is actually launching but there will also be it's not just going to be new comics I mean, i'll talk about those in a second but it's also just sort of building a little community that's sort of free of twitter and etc facebook social media stuff so that there's like sort of a great place to build a little community to talk about this stuff i'll be doing a lot of columns that are almost sort of a return to my column days before i started (laughs) writing so we'll be doing a lot of process posts and stuff like that I've already got some of that kind of stuff up. Yeah, it's going to be really fun. I'm going to do some interviews. I'm planning to have Adam Hughes on to talk about some of the Black Widow covers. And 
Uh, Lena has already agreed to come on from a while back and talk about some of those great spreads she does and stuff like that, or, or at least answer some questions for me. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of really great content in addition to what you're really hoping to get, which are new, <laughs> new creator-owned comics. Uh, the first one I'm doing is called Black Cloak. And it's with Meredith McLaren, who I did Heart in a Box with. She was my first collaborator. Um, it's turning out, it's turning out so great. I love it so much. Um, it's basically like a detective story set in a sort of sci-fi fantasy world. So, you know, imagine a sort of traditional fantasy world. Everyone came together to defeat the great evil, and then they did that. And now what? And now we all have to get along and live together, even though we hate each other. And, you know, so it's sort of like, and people still get killed in that world and you still need law and order. And so it's us sort of exploring what that looks like, you know, several, probably hundred years into the future of a sort of once old fashioned society that's now a little more neo-noir and that's magic based. And then the second book, which is not nearly as far along, so... I was excited to show off the promo image, but I always feel bad making people wait. Like that was a big teaser and now it's going to be a while. But the other book we're working on is um, a gorgeous book called The Cull by Mattia Delius and me. And he was the guy on my Jessica Jones book. So he's got this yeah. beautiful, yeah. very detailed painted style. And that's sort of like, I don't know, grown up Goonies plus some fantasy elements. It's sort of like, <laughs> Oh, I love that. I mean, yeah, so Goonies like, is one of my favorite movies. It is. I mean, it's great. It's so, it's so great. It's so great that like nobody's ever been able to duplicate it. So let me come along and try yeah. to do a thing and fail. Um, they, <laughs> so it's more like teens that have just sort of graduated and it's like their last summer before they're going to all go their separate ways and they go out to this sort of famous rock, which is loosely based on Cannon Beach and Haystack Rock, which is a very famous landmark there. They go out there to short, shoot a short film and then they like find another world. And when they go back, it hasn't been days. It's been much longer and everything has changed and it's all messed up. And so oh God, yeah. I'm so excited for this. It's going to be really, awesome. it's going to be really fun. It's going to be really fun. I'm excited. I think that you know, there's still going to be printed books and some people are just going to want to buy them that way. And that's fine. But I do think that there's something to, you know, first of all, I, I understand why people are protective of print. I am too. I'm protective of yeah. print because I love it. I'm protective of print because there are a lot of people who have jobs directly tied to that. Mm -hmm. And it will mm -hmm. be a really sad day if there aren't any more comic book stores anymore. At the same time, there's a lot of people that don't have access to that or, the only thing they do have access to is not inclusive and not friendly. And so digital is a great playing field leveler, I think, in yeah. that, I mean, it's like when you look at webtoons and all the digital comics, especially that kids read, I mean, they're, they're reading tons of comics. They just mm -hmm. aren't necessarily reading monthly superhero comics. And so I think digital is interesting in this way. And I think that on the Substack, you know, it gets to be a lot if you're subscribing to a lot of different creators, but I do think you're getting sort of a special exclusive behind the scenes thing. And if you're into that, if you're into more than just reading a comic and a lot of people are because they make and listen to podcasts and they make and yeah. listen to videos and YouTubes and all this crazy stuff, then I think there's something really interesting there. So it's an no. experiment. 
I agree. It's funny. Um, many moons ago, I was at the Hachette book group and we were part, we partnered with other publishers like Penguin and we created something called Bookish, which was supposed to be this destination for just book lovers. And it was exactly what Substack is supposed to be. I don't know too much about Substack. And as we were talking about it, I finally can frame it in my mind. But the idea was you're going to source um, more pure metadata for books for yeah. searchability. Yeah. You're going to have authors come in, write behind the scenes content, be able to have their own page where you can engage with them, have chats. Yep. You know, eventually it, it collapsed because the DOJ came in and sued the book publishing industry uh, for oh an, a violation of antitrust laws. Yeah, it was not oh, fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. it was horrific. But I think the idea was there that, that it's note. not that we yeah. didn't want to like, <laughs> on that note, we're done. We didn't want to like eliminate indie booksellers at all. It was just trying to create a very safe destination where right. there was a little bit more um, agency for creators. Right, right, right. Absolutely. I really like the, the subset of how you're approaching it too. Like it's a great way to engage with a lot of your fans and a lot of readers that would want to check out your stuff or even get some behind the scenes info of what you've done before and what you have coming up. Cause I know a lot of other creators are doing it as well. And I think it's, it's like truly fascinating and it definitely piques like my interest. Definitely. I like, I get newsletters from, I'm subscribed to a lot of creators already and it's the coolest yeah. thing. You know, I, was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about how none of this stuff was around when we were trying to become creators like mm -hmm. it was hard mm -hmm. to find this information like now I feel like if you go online and you google you know what does Phil Notto's workstation look like I feel like you'll get a picture of what that looks like because there's so much more involvement from creators and some of it sucks because it feels like an obligation that you have to do because comics is such a niche industry. And if you want to survive, you better be out there hustling. And yeah. some of it is really authentic and sort of beautiful and allows you to connect directly with these people who really are loving something you're doing or that's, you know, like I've gotten so many letters, a lot of them for heart in a box, actually, but I've gotten so many emails from people like who were genuinely moved by something I wrote. And like, if you were super disconnected from the audience, like that would never happen. Like I, and so I, I think that Substack, you know, I think there's a playbook, uh, certainly for the comic book people where we're all sort of following fairly similar playbook, but we're all doing it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be really interesting to watch. What are the things that work and what are the things that don't? I take making comics and me and giving content very seriously. So I don't want to be cavalier or act like I'm being cavalier about what I'm going to provide. I take promising people comics and things like that very seriously. But I also think that what Substack has done has given creators enough money up front, not just to create these books, but to try a couple things to be like, let's see if this works, you know, let's see how this how readers respond to this and if this might be a thing or not and that's incredibly powerful as mm -hmm. is as is creating what you want and owning all your content I can guarantee you all my stuff on there will be really feminist and gay because uh, it's yes. nice it's nice to not have anyone telling you what you can and can't do and that's not really a slight on Marvel it they're billion dollar properties like mm -hmm you can't, you don't just get to be a freelance writer who come, no matter how famous you are, honestly, I mean, being more famous and more powerful probably helps, but freelance writers don't just get to come in and be like, Hey, 
this character is this now because that's a billion dollar property for the industry. And while I would love for all of these things to be more progressive, it's just not practical that giant corporations are going to overnight, you know, so, you know, you push as hard as you can, you try to move things forward and when it works, that's great. And when it doesn't, it's sort of heartbreaking and you move on and then you make a really gay comic called Black Cloak. No. <laughs> so yes. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I it's... love that. <laughs> Kelly, you are, I mean, your energy, your, 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 it's just so infectious. And my God, thank you for just being who you are and the game changer you are for all everything you've done. We, we've been on for an hour and a half and I feel like we still haven't asked everything about your career because <laughs> you're just so, you are a hustler and it's evident in the way you're speaking and all of your work that you just understand the industry from a business perspective all the way down to when you're outlining and writing this character. So thank you so much I'm, for being I'm with glad, us today. I'm glad I've tricked you because whenever I, talk to, <laughs> whenever I talk to Matt Rosenberg, I feel like it's my first day in the industry and I've learned nothing. That guy knows what he's talking about. He knows, he knows so much more than I do about the industry. It's crazy, but thank you. That means a lot. Yes, it was seriously such an honor to have you on this show. Um, where can readers connect with you and like your Substack and everything? First, I have to ask Cole. It's gotten so dark where you are. Are you in trouble? <laughs> are you in danger? No, I, it was really three times. If you need us to send help, <laughs> it started out normal in there, and it's like a black hole now. No, the sun was really shining my uh, into my room, and now it's 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 set, and I'm too lazy to turn on the light right now. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's very moody. I like it. It's moody. Um, anyway, uh, I'm glad you're all right. People can find me. Uh, let's put the Substack up front. It's uh, I think the first time I've given it out. Uh, it's 1979semifinalist.substack. I think, uh, and then you can also find me on Twitter. That's 79semifinalist because Twitter is a dick and won't let me have more characters. Oh. Um, <laughs> what, Twitter? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> uh, and yeah, that's uh, that's about it. That's about it. Thanks for having me on, guys. I had a great time. We oh, had we had, time. I had a spectacular time. Oh, it my was God, Kelly. So fun. This uh, you is guys are very fun. Probably one of my favorite <laughs> interviews I've ever done. Thank you oh so God. much. Same here. That's so nice. So wonderful. Thank you. For Thanks, being- guys. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.